0: Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial
1: intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm your host, Francesco, podcasting from the cozy office of my company, Ametix Technologies, where we use machine learning and AI to empower people and organizations. Today, I'm not alone. I'm with Dr. Charles Martin from Calculation Consulting, a machine learning and data science consulting company based in San Francisco. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show.
1: Great. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Charles, I'm sure that many of the listeners of this podcast already know you, uh, especially for the many posts that we read from LinkedIn and many other social networks where we see you. For the others, please introduce yourself.
1: Uh, great, thanks. Uh, again, I'm Charles Martin. I'm here in San Francisco, California, and I run a boutique uh, consultancy shop where we specialize in AI, deep learning, machine learning, and data science. I've been doing AI and data science in Silicon Valley for almost 20 years, and have worked with companies like eBay, um, Ardvark, which was acquired by Google, uh, BlackRock, which is big hedge, hedge, big Wall Street Hedge Fund, um, and a lot of other familiar companies you may know, like GoDaddy. And mm-hmm. we do various kinds of projects for companies to help them uh, transform themselves into AI companies. Uh, we work with staff, internal staff, and with executives to understand the technologies and to scope out projects and build AI solutions. I myself I myself did my uh, PhD in theoretical chemistry and was a postdoc in theoretical physics and as a postdoc this is in the 90s you know and and so this is before (laughs) the ai winter so we were doing statistical mechanics and theoretical physics of neural networks so i'm very familiar with this technology from way back then and uh i'm amazed that it's all come back you know we're all doing this stuff again so it's fantastic
0: (laughs) that's cool indeed you are experiencing the spring in fact of that winter
1: (laughs) yeah yeah you know it's uh I mean, a lot of people, they ask, well, you know, you're a theoretical chemist. What does chemistry have to do with AI? I'm like, we invented it. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah, you know, we, we were looking at the – there were chemical models of how neurons talk to each other. And that's right. where this stuff comes from. So – I mean, it, and we were doing, you know, very, very esoteric academic things. But even back then, people were trying to think of applications and, you know, trying to build products and doing like robot control and, you know – uh, optical character recognition, and things like this, you know, even even way back in the early 90s.
0: Yeah, in fact, like, you are probably one of the fewest, the, the few out there who can explain the theoretical aspects of neural networks, because I've seen, you know, a lot of practitioners just feeding the networks with data, you know, in these data-driven solutions, and that, that's what they do, in fact, when they say, we do neural networks. But I'm going to get to that point in a minute, which is, in fact, the essence of this episode, First of all, I would like to ask, what are, of course, if you can disclose some of the information that you have, what are some of the fancy projects that you have participated and contributed with AI and machine learning so far?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, very early on, uh, you know, I, I, one one of the great projects I started off doing this um, in industry probably at least 10 years ago was Aardvark, and Aardvark was a... Um, Social search engine, and the idea is you would have a chat bot, uh, like Slack or you know, at that point, you know, Facebook Messenger right. or something like this, and you would ask a question and it would go out and find somebody to answer the question. And uh, a lot of you may use Quora, you may be familiar with Quora or Stack Overflow, uh, that kind of thing, but it was in a chat bot. And we used uh, very early forms of AI and machine learning to go out and route the question to figure out who to, who to find to answer it, and it was, um. I mean, this was so early on, I didn't realize how early we were back then, because you know, I, I had been doing this in, as an R&D uh, specialist, a, a subject matter expert in machine learning eBay. We had to build all the AI in Ruby. I mean, it was Ooh. crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. We, and we had to build it by assembling off-the-shelf components in C and C++, and then hooking them into Ruby and building an interface. And, you know, now, you know, we have Python and we have uh, Scikit-Learn and we have TensorFlow. And all, but all that, none of that stuff existed back then. And we we're basically assembling things from scratch. And, you know, this company was acquired by Google. It was a very, very early machine learning startup. And it was the, so been, you know, it's amazing now, things that you can do in an afternoon right. would take weeks back then. Just yeah. because of the, all of the engineering work, but the the basic ideas are the same. You know that you have to collect data, you have to label it, you have to uh, run it through a classifier, you have to run a test, you put it in production, see what it does. It's all the same. Uh, uh, after After Aardvark, um, I went to a company called Demand Media, which had a website you may remember from years ago called Ehow. And yeah. eHow was a question. At one time, eHow was one of the largest websites in the world. And, and the way we got this to, to become the largest website in the world is we essentially, um, I, I can't say, le- I would not say it's not, it, it. essentially figured out how Google PageRank works. And I, I wouldn't say we reverse engineered it, but we, at the legally, I can't say we reverse engineered it. What I would say is that we figured out how to predict how much traffic we could get on Google okay. bef- on a page before we wrote it.
0: And so the scope of that, the purpose of that prediction was what? To try to keep up the ranks or-, or Yes, be on yeah, the so top? this is, yeah.
1: you, if anyone does SEO, you mm-hmm. may know that Google is very secretive about what how SEO works. They don't yeah, tell people exactly. how SEO works. Uh, they don't tell you who's come to your webpage, who's clicked on it. Well, there's this thing called Google Panda and Google Penguins. Well, I'm responsible for all that. Because in the old days, uh, what you could do is you could track everybody who came to your website. You could track what they searched for and where they clicked. And right. from that, we, we the way eHow worked is we had you know maybe 2 million web pages. We looked at all the people coming in, what they were searching for, where they clicked reverse engineered that and figured out how to predict what pages people would click on before we wrote them. Hmm. So at one point demand media was producing a hundred thousand pieces of content a month. And we had maybe three to five of the top search results in almost all of Google. So that's why I say we, you know, we kind of reverse engineered Google page rank because we can figure. and, And of course, as soon as Google figured out, we did this, um, they changed everything, you know. So, Demand Media was the first billion-dollar IPO since Google, and so this was all done using machine learning. And people don't read. So, this was you know ten years ago, and this has totally changed the way Google search works. And that's why. And, and in some sense, you know, now when you type in a result in Google, and you go, "Well, why is the result not exactly what I typed in?" Mm-hmm. Well, because we, because that's why. Because since we broke Google. So this. this <laughs> so and I have a, I have a. Uh, a case study I do at the business school, the Executive MBA program, we talk about how, you know, how powerful these algorithms are. The kind of things that happened and what happens um, when, when you know, you you have an algorithm so powerful that that it uh, it, it essentially changes the entire industry and the landscape and uh, of how the how the products work. So it, it's a, it's really uh, so. Those are some really neat projects we've worked on over the years, and and this is then that was you know, almost ten years ago. So imagine what you can do now with the technology we have, a, I have a client now, um, uh, an old client, you know, they're an old client of mine. And they, we had, and they came to me and they, they'd worked on the problem of uh, generating fake text mm-hmm. again for SEO. And they have yeah. now this, there's a tool called OpenAI, AI, uh, GPT, uh, yeah. GPT two. Well, they've got it working now and they can generate fake text and they're going to try to use it to generate uh SEL and they, you know they and and it's amazing i mean and um i mean they have and they have pretty much this is the thing for people to realize out there these are not phd's in theoretical physics uh they figured this out on their own you know i helped <laughs> them a little i mean the way i work i kind of work with them maybe 10 hours a week and i give them consulting and i kind of guide them but they basically went online they took the fast AI program out here at University of San Francisco, taught themselves neural networks, and with my guiding them a little bit, they've been able to figure out how to generate fake text. And now they're trying, they're gonna and it's just amazing. So that's you know, at ehal that was the holy grail. You know, imagine being able to generate fake text, put it on the internet, and just get free money.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's true. Well, so, I, so I'm was- just amazed. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> No, just let me go to the essence of the episode, which is exactly what you're talking about, but from a much more technical perspective, which I believe the listeners of the, of this podcast will enjoy, and which is the nuts and bolts of deep, deep neural networks. Now, I read a paper, I'm, I'm going to mention that, uh, whenever people deal with the deep neural network, you know, they do so in an almost always practical way. As you said, you know, the, these people are, have no clue what theoretical physics is, of course. There are not so many... Uh, physicists out there who can also do deep learning at that level but you know usually people what people do is taking some data transforming the data cleaning the data and then you know feeding in your networks on a gpu and boom they get something that is you know domain specific it, it, it does the job right now i've seen much less theory of uh, of neural networks with respect to the theory i had to digest at least myself on many other methods in the past Do you have exactly the same feeling as I do, and if so, why is that the case?
1: Well, I I think that um, the theory of deep learning is much more complicated than the simple things we see in statistics or machine learning. And a lot of the theory uh, was developed in theoretical physics, which which makes it nearly impenetrable. Even to people who do theoretical physics, I mean, this stuff is just—you know—it'll it, take you a month and a half to get through ten pages of the theory. And the and and the other is that the the you know neural networks have expanded so much that there's so many people working on it that it's it's advancing far beyond where where the theory can keep up. So in the in the in the eighties. When we did neural networks, we did something called a hot field associative memory, and that was a, a simple neural network, and there was a theoretical analysis of it, and the theory is exact, and you can go back to a Physics Today article in the 80s, and you talk about here's how the theory works, and it would tell you here's how many patterns you can load into your network before it gets confused, and there were people building simple – and it could do simple things like simple – um, OCR it could recognize a one from a two from a three. Very simple stuff. Um, then the system started becoming very, very complicated. And the theory now, I, I think people want the theory to look like some simple mathematical thing you see in statistics. And it, it's more like organic chemistry. You know, there is a theory behind it. But if you kind of look at what's going on, you kind of have to squint at it and go, well, I I kind of understand it, but it's so complicated that there are lots of things happening that we really don't understand that well. And, And I think that people just aren't used to working with those kinds of theories. And when you're a chemist or you're a physical scientist, you're accustomed to working with theories that are not exact. There are theories where you have to measure things and you build simple theories to explain or predict your measurements. Um, not everything works from first principles the way you would expect, and and I think that's just the the nature of a physical theory, and that's what people in in computer science are used to having things being very simple, everything being very rigorous and 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 worked out from step A, step B, step C, and it's just it just that's not how the real world is, and I think that's part of the confusion. So there there is theory. Uh, It's very complicated, and it's very difficult to translate theory to practice. There's an old joke, you know, in in theory, practice and theory are the same, and in practice, they're different.
0: (laughs) That's a nice uh, summary of your your, uh, point of view. Well, I have read the work that you wrote with um, Michael Mahoney from UC Berkeley about self-regularization in neural networks. To be honest, it's not an easy reading, but you know, I found it fascinating for the results that you guys claim. It is quite theoretical. I want to alert the listeners of the podcast. So I'd say it's not something that you read at the beach, <laughs> to be honest with you, I mean, depending on how how nerd you are. But some of the implications of that work are really stunning. So the questions that you try to answer in the paper, and I essentially reformulate here in the episode, are these two. Why is regularization in deep learning seemingly quite different than regularization in other areas of machine learning? And the second question is how can we dominate deep neural networks in a theoretical principled way if we have to do so?
1: So when you when you think about regularization in regular machine learning what what you're trying to do is you're trying to Essentially, invert a matrix. You're trying to solve a problem which is singular, meaning that it blows up, or there, there's some problem where you know you have a parameter. There's a single parameter, maybe a couple parameters, and when you adjust those parameters, it appears to fix the problem. And the the theory of this, there, there's a very very sophisticated theory developed by a guy named Vapnik, Vapnik and Shrever who are these Russians who sort of had their own manifesto. The a russian manifesto of how the theory works and the theory gives you a very abstract reason for why regularization should work uh, if you ever study just basic linear algebra and you realize what's going on in the theory and I, i'm amazed i, I meet people who study the theory don't realize this is what's going on from linear algebra that you know you invert a matrix the matrix is not invertible so you just add something to the diagonal and now it's invertible that's it. It's called, and that was in and that predates. And, and so, what you do is you call it. Oh, this was developed by Phillips. It was an electrical engineer. Uh, it was basically a hack. Uh, then a guy named then off comes in. You give it a Russian name. You call it off regularization. It sounds very fancy, <laughs> but you know the, the idea is actually very crude, and the the theory it does work. In the sense that, oh, you can adjust these parameters and it sort of hacks together what's going on. If you ask now deep, if you ask a deeper theoretical question, like, um, what if your data de- in the theory of mach- the statisticians come in and try to formalize this and they take something that somebody's doing empirically. Which is basically fixing up a bad matrix, and they formalize. They say, "Well, if the data is statistically independent, it's i.i.d. and it's Gaussian distributed, blah blah blah, then you can compute the you can compute the test error, and you can get an estimate of the generalization error by computing the test error, doing cross validation." Yeah, you, know, so, you know, you know, you you do cross, and then and then you go to a real problem, and you ask, "Well, wait a minute, all data is correlated." And if the data is, in other words, the data in your test set might look like the data in your training set. In fact, it might be exactly the same. You know, you might actually have a, a copy. You know, this actually happens. You, if you look at some of these large test sets like mints it turns out that data, or when you do natural image processing, some of the data in the test sets are actually duplicates of what's in the training data. So the data is completely correlated. And if you ask the statistician, how do you deal with this? They go, well, we don't know how to deal with correlated data. They don't have a clue what to do there, and and you know what? Do you, and I mean, a perfect example of this if you're trying to predict the stock market,
0: right? And you try to that's cool. that's basically the, the multicollinearity problem, right?
1: Right, right, yeah. And, and and you can imagine that the you know the 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 data from tomorrow you're trying to predict is so correlated with the data with today that you can't include it in the test set, right? So nobody knows. I mean, there there are some crude examples of how to adjust for this, but you know, even there. The theory is just it completely breaks down, and what you have mm. to do, and this is what people really do, unless you're, you know, you you have to take something which is fairly simple, and you have to apply it to something which is seemingly outside its range of validity. And, and this is how science works. You you take a theory which is developed on something simple, and you apply it to something outside its range of validity, and you see if it works. And then when it works, then you go back. And usually what happens is that's what happens. And then somebody goes back and patches it up and tries to make it seem like it's theoretically
0: correct. And it's, so it's, it's reverse engineering science. In fact.
1: It's, it's exactly what's going on. And it, I mean, from a <laughs> physicist's perspective, I mean, I have a degree in mathematics also, and the physicists are always like, "Well, you know what the mathematicians do is they take the stuff we're doing and then they formalize it and they make it look rigorous, and then they teach right. people. And then when you teach people how to do science, you're teaching them all this rigor, and they, they mm. and they get stuck. We used to say in physics, too much rigor leads to rigor mortis." <laughs> Because you're, you're yeah. that's not, not how it's. That's not how the theory is developed. So, if you look at something, if you ask deeper questions, like you go to statistics and you ask, okay, uh, there's this thing called the Vapnik-Chervonenkis bound, the VC bound. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I first started working in the industry, you have something called an SVM, and I go, okay, uh, how do I compute the VC bound? What do you mean? You know, well, well, I, you told me there's a theory, and you told me that the theory. Of the VC bound tells me what the generalization error should be. It gives me a bound on the error. Okay, well, how do I do that in practice? And why would you want to do that? I go, well, why do you have a theory that I can't use in practice? Well, it's just theoretical. It's beautiful. I go, you know, okay, I guess, you know, I guess every child is beautiful to its mother. You know,
0: um, <laughs> yeah, you but know, be- that- beautiful things are not always the most useful ones. Indeed, it's
1: useless nonsense. It's useless nonsense. <laughs> it doesn't work yeah. at all. Yeah it's complete nonsense. It's, it's just a bunch uh, you know, the bound is the VC bound for some of the uh, problem in industry. If you were to look at it from a physics perspective, it's larger than the, it's larger than the the known size, the size of the known universe. You know, it's just nonsense. So this stuff is useless nonsense. And this is a problem that people who now begin to work in, So so what do people really do with this stuff? I mean, the way you use theory is that you try to develop a regularizer. Somebody says there's a bound, you invent a bound, and then that bound is then said, well, that bound can be then formulated as a regularizer. And then you add that and you say, well, I'm going to now try to apply this in a finite size system. And that's what people are doing. You know, that's how they use Mm -hmm. theory and they create these. mm, Go
0: ahead. Sorry, go ahead.
1: So if you look at what's going on in neural networks and you you try to do theory in this space and you work with these guys. Who are the theorists, they'll say to you, oh, you have a theory, what's your bound? I go, we're not looking at the bound. Why not? I go, oh, 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 we don't think that's an interesting question. Well, that's the only interesting question. I mean, literally, right. this is, this is a kind of, you know, go to a conference, this is the kind of conversation you have with people. What they expect you to do is to have a new kind of regularizer. That's all they're looking for. And there's no, yeah. there's nothing else that anybody's thinking about in a deep way.
0: Yeah. So let me rephrase a sec. Go ahead. <laughs> Let me refresh a second, because th- those those who come from classic predictive models, like, you know, what you just mentioned, I guess, lasso, ridge regression, these, you know, are all used to the so-called the Tikhonov regularization, which is basically adding a regularization term uh, to the minimization, whatever it is, which is some kind of penalty that makes an ill-posed problem solvable, right? It's a trick that, that we used 30 years ago. And it works. Huh. Now, what you found in in this paper is that you know this classic form of regularization no longer applies to deep neural networks. So, what happens there?
1: Right. So, what what's going on? Okay. So, if you think about what is Tinkernoff off regularization, think about it in terms of what was called Phillips regra- Phillips regularization from the nineteen fifties. Actually, is when it comes from. So, it's actually older <laughs> than. You take a matrix, <laughs> you invert it. There are some there are some small eigenvalues. If you try to invert a matrix. With small eigenvalues, you know you're taking basically one over zero, and that will blow up. So what you do is you add mm-hmm. something, you add, you add a term to the diagonal, so that you you basically smooth out the small eigenvalues, and now you can invert the matrix. Okay, right. so we do this in physics all the time, and this is you know this is done in field theory. It's a regularizer. We, this is done. In, I mean, this is not unique to machine learning. Mm-hmm. Do this all the time. Uh, sometimes there's theory behind it. Sometimes there's not. And, um, what we this is actually done in quantum field theory. it's another podcast. So in, 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 in if you look at our approach to trying to understand what is regularization in neural networks is to look at the weight matrices and ask, well, why don't we pretend we're doing taking off regularization? Uh, let's take a look at the weight matrix. Let's form the correlation matrix, W transpose W. Sometimes it's called the gram matrix, you know, whatever you want to call it, the data matrix, Mm -hmm. and look at its eigenvalues and ask, what does the eigenvalue spectrum look like? Are there any small eigenvalues? What does the neural network do? In the small neural networks, the kinds we worked in the 80s, things like uh, Lynette 5, any kind Mm -hmm. of small toy, all the toy models that people use to study, you find that, there are two classes of eigenvalues. There are eigenvalues that are they look random. They look they look they they look like the starting initial conditions. You start off with the random Gaussian matrix and you begin training, and you pick up a little bit of correlations in the in the data in the W matrix. The eigenvalues don't really change that much; they stay random. But then you start seeing spikes appear. These spikes start appearing in the eigenvalue spectrum, and they begin to pull out of the bulk this is in in um, in statistics this is called a spiked covariance model in physics there's a model this is called self-organization there's a model by a guy named Dieter Sornay, who's a specialist in this and um, forgive mm-hmm. me I think I'm pronouncing the name correctly uh, and this is called self-organization and so what's happening is as the system is running the the data is the the weight matrices the the weight the weight matrix components, the elements are beginning to self-organize around the data and they start picking up the correlations and you get spikes to appear. And these spikes can carry the, they carry most of the information. They carry the information you can see. That is, you can see the spike. Everything else is, there's information in the bulk, but you just can't, it's, it's so small that the noise dominates it. So this is like a form of, so the the insight is that this phenomenon that the neural network is learning these spikes is similar to saying there's a scale cutoff between the eigenvalues with the information and the eigenvalues that are very noisy. That's taking off regularization. That's what you do. And taking off regularization, when you set your regularization parameter, you're effectively setting a scale cutoff. You're saying all the the information, which is less than alpha, your parameter, is noisy and we can't Everything above alpha is useful, and it's sort of a soft – it's a soft cutoff. So as opposed to, say, doing singular value decomposition, which is a very hard cutoff, and you say, I'm just going to keep all the – I'm going to keep all the the big spikes and throw away all the little spikes. You're not really throwing information away in taking off regularization. You're softening it. So what happens in – now this seems to appear – this behavior appears in many, many small neural networks. So this is a problem because if a lot of people like to study small neural networks as toy problems. It's like, well, that's nice, but you don't pick up what's going on in the big networks. So our, our approach to this was, look, look, I don't care about small models. I mean, I like them. They're nice to work with. But people in industry use big models. They use AlexNet. They use Inception. They use ResNet. They use GP2. They use BERT. They don't use these little models. So what's, why are the big models different? If you look at the big models, the weight matrices turn out to be heavy-tailed. It turns out that as you begin learning on the data, the, the, you get these spikes that appear in the correlation matrix. They, they appear in this, the eigenvalue spectrum of your weight matrices. So you can you have a tool called Weight Watcher, and what the tool does, it plots. It'll plot the eigenvalue spectrum of each of your layers, and you can look at it. And as you get – as your neural network gets better and better at representing your data, you get more and more spikes begin to pull out of the bulk. More and more of the eigenvalues become useful, and you get this, the spikes. And 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 if you're in a really, really good network, which is trained really well, it's all spikes. There's no more bulk. So as you learn more and more – as the neural network learns more and more information, the eigenvalue spectrum of your weight matrices become heavy-tailed. And so the right. bulk goes away. So- Go ahead.
0: No, I mean, what are the implications of such a finding? Like, from a practical from from a practical perspective, you are saying that you know you are basically using empirical spectral, spectral density, right, of the yes. correlation matrix of yes. the weights of a okay, yeah. so which is in fact saying uh, calculating the distribution of the eigenvalues of the weight matrix. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, in in lo- in small systems, we are more you know considering the t of like regularization, while in large system this doesn't apply anymore. And so the weights can be explained with the heavy tally, heavy-tailed theory. Uh, that That's what the finding of, of they, the is. They can is be that predicted. Correct?
1: You can predict that mm. the better your network does, the more heavy-tailed it will be.
0: I see. And so how can one, you know, a practitioner... What's the benefit of this finding? What are the implications okay. from a practical perspective?
1: Okay, so we wrote a tool. I call it Weight Watcher, and I know it. Once we haven't got the the letter yet to stop using it, so it hasn't got popular. But we wrote a tool. You can take your neural network. You can put into Weight Watcher pip install Weight Watcher. It's Python tool, and you can mm-hmm. get. Uh, it will give. It will compute an estimate of the heavy tailness. It will tell you how much correlation you have. In your data by giving you a a parallel exponent, prints out the average parallel exponent and it gives you the parallel exponent for each layer. We, We predict. Remember, the point of a theory is to predict something, not to explain, we predict. So we predict that if you have two neural networks you're trying to train and you want to know which one's going to perform better, on average, the parallel exponent should be smaller. So let me let me give an example where this might be practically useful. Let's say you're, you're um you're doing some sort of auto ML and you've got a few candidate neural networks and they're they're basically mm-hmm. similar architectures, but you know, you you don't have a lot of test data. You don't and you can look at the parallel exponent and you mm-hmm. can pick the out al- the architecture which will work better, because on average you have smaller exponents. Another example, another example, things we're trying to figure out how to, how to, how to apply this. Imagine you have, you're in a self-driving car company and you're collecting huge amounts of data. That's the biggest problem you have in, in, in people think that training the network is the problem. No, the, the big problem you have in industry is collecting labeled data because it's so expensive. Well, how do you know if you have enough data? Well, exactly. one of the practical problems we think maybe we could solve is that if your parallel exponents stop changing during training, as you train in your epoch, box you're running, you know, you a like hundred F-Box. If your parallel exponent stops going down, that means you have to, you can stop training. If you add more and more data and your parallel exponent stops going down, maybe you've got enough data.
0: Or exactly. if, so, if, these also,
1: uh, so these are the kinds of, you know, we, we these are the kinds of practical questions we want to address.
0: Well, these are, in fact, very important because, in fact, you can even ask, for example, to this, I guess, the Weight Watcher, uh, you can also use this tool to understand when it's good to stop training a network, right?
1: Yes. Yes. And, and in fact, this is okay. part of the theory. Now, this is all very early theory. Okay? We're, we want people to use the tool and we want people to come back to us and say, hey, we used the tool and this is what we found. And then we'll go, okay, look, it, so I'll give you an example. We went to one of the self-driving car companies, and we tried to apply the tool. And we looked at some of their comp- – in fact, we, we applied it to the Intel distiller model. So it's all open source. It's all open source. I took the Intel distiller model, and I tried to apply it. It turns out some of the distiller dist- – because what happens is – what are people doing now? They take these really big neural networks for image, and they try to get them to run on the hardware. And they're too big. You, know, you can't run, you can't run um, VGG – on the hardware in the car the matrices are too large so they try to compress it and when you run the compression algorithm and you run our weight matrix it turns out things go bananas like it 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 doesn't correlate (laughs) like okay great the first first example we tried on brakes okay that's fine you know we're scientists what's going on well you know there's it turns out there are other metrics you can look at so in addition to looking at the power law exponents you can also look at the spectral norm The spectral norm is the maximum eigenvalue of your weight matrix. So theory, the so-called statistician theory, says that the maximum eigenvalue, the spectral norm of the weight matrices, should get smaller as you train. So there's theory that says this. Now, no one's ever bothered to actually look and ask (laughs) if that actually happens. You know, they just write, they just, you know, we have a saying, you know, we we don't write theorems. We're making a theory. Okay, I don't want to, you know what I mean? I don't want to publish a theorem. I want to give you a tool. I want you to use it. And I want you to come back to me and say, the theory worked, the theory didn't. So what we discovered is that in the distillation models, in these compressed models, in some of them, when you compress the matrix, you screw up the spectral norm. And so the spectral norm blows up. So if you go and look, and we have a, a in our workshop paper, we recently did a workshop in theoretical physics at ICML. And I show this and say, if you look at some of these compressed networks, the parallel law exponents go down as you as you compress. The, in other words, the better the accuracy, the smaller the parallel exponent. But the spectral but the spectral norm blows up. So you broke. so you're breaking something. when you do the compression model, we discovered that they broke something in the network. So you, so, and, then we, and then we went back and said, okay, we took the weight watcher tool, and we added, an option to produce the spectral norm. So there's, you know, there's, you know so now when you, when you, so we recommend that when you're analyzing your neural networks, you look at the Frobenius norm, the spectral norm, and the parallel exponents. You look at all of them because they all should be decreasing. And if they're not all decreasing, maybe something is broken
0: right so uh, to 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 summarize a bit because i don't want to frighten the 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 listeners of this podcast with a lot of theory but you know one thing that i I definitely want to say is that read this paper is not an easy peasy but uh, you know it's it's it has important foundations. It has important consequences of, of what Charles uh, is saying in this paper. And you can also answer question uh, like, is deeper always better with neural networks? Or when is it good to stop training? When is a neural network trained enough? What's the role that batch size and regularization, learning rate, choice of the solver, whole play in the game? And, you know, how can one control so many variables at once, right? So, this, uh, you know, Weight Watcher, which is, I believe, the uh, the, the summary of all the theoretical foundations that you guys elucidated in the paper is a very good tool to analyze your networks at that level now you want to add something charles
1: well i want you to think of it as static analysis you know okay. when, when we do right. software engineering we, we you know we do unit testing right and so when you when you mm-hmm. build a neural network you have to test it and that's fine. Of course you have test data. But we also, you know, as, as you build more sophisticated systems, you also do things like static analysis. You know, you you know, you do code analysis, you run lint. So the Weight Watcher tool, the goal of the tool is to be able to, an- to do static analysis, to analyze and learn everything we can about your neural network without looking at the data. That's what we're trying to do. And it's it's an ambitious goal. Um it's very new, early. And, you know, if you use what I would suggest is get the tool, try the tool, use the tool. We have a Slack channel. You can send me, you can ping me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll add you to the Slack channel and you can ask me questions about the tool.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely add all these references to the show notes of this episode together with your contacts and, of course, the Slack channel of, uh, of Weight Watcher. Can I ask one last thing about the, you know, the mathematical background in your paper explains why deep learning works and, you know, the reason why it works and then, of course, measuring things and, as you said, testing networks and then see when they do not work. Now, in which cases, you know, you can mention scenarios, applications, types of data. Do you think neural networks currently do not work and probably never will?
1: So I think that... um Neural networks work really. They seem to work really well on on vision problems like classification. They work really well on text, which is amazing. They're definitely harder to work on discrete data. When I work with clients, you know, like like uh, categorical data, I recommend using XGBoost because XGBoost is really good and um, it works really well. And I don't really try to build neural networks to. Uh, You know, look at categorical data, data coming out of spreadsheets, things like this, because it just it's it doesn't work that well yet. And you know, will it ever work there? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the the neural networks are designed to find patterns in natural images and natural data structures. And the the reason is we believe that works is because the neural networks, because they're heavy tailed, they try to find long range correlations and physical systems. Exhibit this sort of heavy-tailed behavior. If you look at like the an image of a tree, it's you, there. There are tools that generate images of trees and flowers. They're called L systems. They're fractals. Natural systems have fractal. They have fractal um, characteristics. Language. There's something called zips law. Language is fract, it has so natural systems, natural language, speech, vision are
0: power law, power power they
1: exhibit heavy power law behavior. And I think the neural networks are very good at learning power law correlations. If you look at discrete data, there's no reason why it would be power law, it's just correlated, it's just nasty. Mm. And in something like XGBoost, is probably a much faster, easier tool. And so I, the other questions are things like unsupervised learning where, you know, we, I, I, you know, is, is, well, that's a harder problem because there are people who call in some sense, li- you know, these language models are in some sense unsupervised. Mm-hmm. they there the, the way the language model or they're unsupervised in the sense that people use GAN, general Ad- adversarial networks. Um, right. So those are in some sense unsupervised. I think that, um, uh with a lot there's a lot we need to learn about these kinds of systems we're still trying that one of the things we're doing with the weight watcher tool is we we apply it to the gans and we find we all sorts of weird things like the, the weird stuff there
0: compatible like, with the are, are these findings compatible compatible with the findings that you found for regular networks or is there something they are. Like- they are,
1: but like for example, the GANs, we we see a number of layers that are not heavy tailed. They're just self organized, but they're not heavy tailed. We see ones which have significant rank collapse. So th- this is like if you take the way you do is you take the tool, you take the GAN coming out of G- the Google's open source GAN, and you run the tool. There's like a like five hundred layers, and many of them are heavy tailed, but there's a ton of them which just look really weird, and and we don't know. Um, do they look weird because the GAN needs them to look weird? Uh, is the GAN just simply not well optimized? Um, those are things we don't understand yet.
0: Okay, Charles, what domains do you expect practitioners will focus in the next five years?
1: Oh, I, I think you know tough the, one. Five, the next five months, you know, every, every <laughs>
0: six
1: months something new has happened. Uh, I I think that um. I think a huge area that people haven't even begun to explore yet is in civil engineering and the use of lidar data where you have the, now you have lidar companies you know producing all this data we have images of buildings images of uh, cities and you're going to have now you begin to see people developing neural networks which can analyze lidar data which is point cloud data so it's not quite image data but it's similar and I think that's an area of, of a type of data set which we don't have a lot of open source versions of it. But think about um, what is the largest industry in the world? It's, it's construction, right? right? Build things. I mean, look who's the president? You know, he's he builds things. You <laughs> know? it's construction. It's it's an industry which is far exceeds tech, um, and I I don't think anyone has that industry has really even closely been tapped yet, and because a lot of people talk about medical or they'll talk about you know um, true. Stock market, but th- that's-
0: Finance, the, yeah, indeed.
1: Finance, but no, construction, civil engineering, LiDAR data, you know, real physical objects. I think that's an area where uh, we haven't even begun to tap what's going on. And and I think that's where, um, uh, you know, and obviously the self-driving car companies are moving that forward. And I think that the technologies they're developing would have wide application Far beyond self-driving cars and things like we had to mm-hmm. come to us once. I'll give you an example, simple example. It was an idea I proposed to them. We didn't win the project, but that's okay. Uh, it's still a great, idea. <laughs> still a great um, idea. Imagine, you know, when you have a hurricane comes in and it knocks down all the, fu- all the telephone poles. Well, you have to go back in, okay. and the telephone poles back up. Well, you know, it turns out that nobody knows which telephone poles have transformers on them and which ones don't. So you have to go and have a human go and look at them, and go, okay, this one has a transformer; it has to go back up. This one doesn't. Right? But, you know, the telephone poles aren't all the same. Well, imagine you go out, you drive around with a car, you collect the lidar data, then you can figure out what fell down, and then you can say, okay, this this needs to be fixed. This pole needs to be fixed. This one. And you know, there's no. It's not like the cities have records of this.
0: <laughs> right. Or you send an. You can even send an autonomous drone that does that for you. <laughs> you don't even have to drive.
1: <laughs> so you can imagine now. Um, things like and a, a small project might be fifty million dollars. You can imagine, and it costs you know labeling data is expensive, and getting humans to look at the data. You know it might cost you. I think a friend of mine who went to self-driving car companies, it's like three to five dollars an image to get the labels. So you know being able to solve those problems, that's a huge area which is completely untapped. Um, and it, it's a difficult one to get into because of the way the financing is done i mean no, no one in silicon valley is even close to touching this yet so i think you know areas of construction architecture building physical objects i think these are areas where deep learning and is really hasn't even scratched the surface yet and i think that's a that's going be one that is um that's going to be a big one um you know and you know you can also imagine you know when you're you know i mean obviously in time you're going into, uh, you know, in the war field, you know, war fighting when you're, you know, you, you know, using the data to right. analyze what's going on. I mean, there's all sorts of applications, which, and, and it's fairly, I, I think five, you know, when I look five years down the road, I'm thinking, yeah, developed technology you know, we have, when clients come to us, it used to be people would come to us and they want to do research and we have clients we work with internal research, but now what people want are pilot. They want off the shelf solutions. <laughs> so I think what we're going to sure. see in the next five years are going to be off-the-shelf solutions, plug-and-play, which work in vertical industries with huge areas of return. And I, and I think that's that's what we're going to And we don't see anything like that yet. We don't have plug-and-play, mm-hmm. AI, yet. plug-and-play AI yet. But
0: that's coming. Yeah. Well, we'll get there for sure. It's Your, your vision is extremely interesting, and uh, I, I agree totally with it. Charles, it was very nice to have you on the show. The paper is amazing. Your vision is very, very attractive. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the listeners of Data Science at Home podcast will enjoy uh, listening to you and uh, listening about all the insights that you gave. Also, we will report the Weight Watcher and all the other links and uh, Slack channels that people might be interested in uh, in the show notes of this episode. And so I thank you again for taking the time and uh, sharing your knowledge with, uh, with us.
1: Well, great. Thank you very much. I really enjoy doing this and I appreciate the interest.
0: You're very welcome. All right. You have a great day. You've been listening to
1: Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.